Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Carol Lynn Pearson, welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you today? I am well today. Thank you very much, Bill. Great to be with you. Yeah, I'm grateful to have you on. I'm, you're one of those folks that... Uh, have always been on my list and, and you and I got to chatting a few days ago and, and I've got your book here sitting next to me and I thought it'd be just a wonderful chance just to sit down with you and to talk and I know every one of my listeners, they're listening to other podcasts too and I think anybody who's delving into, uh, the complexities of Mormonism has come across the name Carolyn Pearson but maybe for that one listener, Carolyn uh, who is not listening at the moment, or who has never heard of you, or has not been listening to podcasts, not doing any reading, would you mind just sharing just a brief bio of who you are, kind of introducing yourself to the listener? Okay, a little bio of me. Born in Salt Lake City. Uh, very strong pioneer roots. Grew up hearing all of the great pioneer stories. And um, went to BOI High School in Provo. BYU, majored in drama. I loved the theater. I was above average as a college performer, but I was surely not good enough to make that a career. And the doors, the doors that opened for me were the writing doors. And I'm really grateful for that because I think a writer is about as close as you get to, to the, the very core of the idea. Um, an actor takes the idea and adds something wonderful to it, but you know it's the writer that comes up with it. So, I have I have fortunately been able to earn a living as a writer, which I know is pretty unusual and for which I am deeply grateful. So that's my my early bio, and I've written so much about um, all of the complexities that came into my life. When I married, happened to have married a, a gay man whom I loved very much and who loved me as much as he possibly could. And our story there is told for that one person that you're thinking does not know anything about me. I'm sure there are plenty of those, however. Um, that book is called Goodbye, I Love You. can be easily found in many places. <clears throat> and uh, that was a very important book actually to open up the conversation in Mormondom not only about AIDS and my my former husband did pass away from AIDS um, after we had tried very hard to maintain our marriage and had four children and so that was a major contribution that that he unwittingly made because he was the one who turned me into a published writer. He insisted that we publish a little book of my poems called Beginnings, and that by fluke or by fate put me on the map in Mormondom and then to some extent elsewhere. And uh, so I owe him a lot. And <clears throat> that opened the door to all of the other things that I've written, which are now many on, on gay issues, on women's issues. I saw a thing on Facebook a little bit ago that my friend Jerry Rapier, who runs Plan B Theater in Salt Lake, put out a, a post saying, it's been 10 years tonight since we opened with Carolyn Pearson's Facing East. And that's a really important play that I love so much. The story of an upstanding Mormon couple dealing with the suicide of their gay son. We had a wonderful run in Salt Lake City. 
and uh, subsequently took the the play to uh, an off-Broadway run and then San Francisco. And uh, other things I've done for the gay community. <clears throat> but also, well, the way I put it really is that I was born into women's issues and then married into gay issues. So in these later years, I've found myself getting very much back committed to the some of the things that church society needs to be doing to move out of patriarchy into partnership. And of course, that's that's a theme of the book that, that you mentioned, though we haven't said the title, so let's say the title right now before we move any further. That title is The Ghost of Eternal Polygamy, subtitle, Haunting the Hearts and Heaven of Mormon Women and Men. So that's the most recent one. And that's kind of a brief look at my story, so let's just move on from there, Bill. Well, I'm glad to get the kind of an intro from you and in, in- to kind of get that background, I did want to start off asking, you know, you mentioned being born into women's issues, obviously you're female. You, you mentioned marrying into the LGBT issue, but I'm curious, whenever I talk to Mormons who are, um, having, having gone through what they would call faith transitions or journeys, I'm always curious in their upbringing, if they were brought up in like a rigid household or an orthodox or fundamental household, and maybe all three or maybe none of those, I'm just curious if you, how you would describe like how you saw yourself as a Latter-day Saint uh, growing up in the church. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say that ours was a, a rigid or a fundamentalist household. It was a very faithful household. And, and I grew up just being kind of a happy, unquestioning, good little Mormon girl. And that was... The world that I knew, I, I didn't know of any real thinking beyond that. And it was really, well, probably even before high school that I began to think outside the box a little bit. Um, particularly, well, really only then because of women's issues, because truly I, I looked around at a very early age and said, wow, what, there's something wrong here. Because clearly all of the important things in church and in uh, society were being done by, by men. But I was just as smart as any boy around. I was as good as any boy around. And in this new book, I, I do tell of a very pivotal experience uh, in high school of our much-loved seminary teacher bearing us his testimony about the eternal validity of polygamy, that our Father in Heaven has many wives, our mothers in Heaven, and that when we could become less selfish, we young women will yearn to live that principle. That was that was emotionally, and because I remember it so clearly, I really do. I, I remember where I was sitting in that room. And um, there was something in me that really split at that time, saying, this has to be true, because because my seminary teacher has borne us his testimony, and I, I know he's a good man, and he knows so much more than I do. But it was something that that felt very, very wrong to me. And there's nothing really as crazy-making as, as believing that God wants something for you that you intuitively, innately feel is not a correct thing. That's You, you can't live with that thought for very long. Uh, so... Gradually, and then especially as I as I had to consider the the gay issues because of my husband, and I knew when we went into our marriage that that had been his background, and so as we had to continue, he and I together, trying to figure out our our lives after we both learned that uh, what we'd hoped for had not happened, that he was not quote cured of, of all this. Um. He and and I with him began to just study very carefully 
how all of that fit into what we were told was God's plan. And um, it just gradually I, I became someone who questioned a lot and yet still kept a, a pretty solid footing within the church. Right, right. No, and I, again, appreciate that perspective because, like you say, the this, this seminary teacher kind of opens the door to some cognitive dissonance over the issue of polygamy. And, and I enjoy hearing you speak of the fact that you grew up with with a little bit of an out-of-the-box perspective. And, and I think that just shows up so much as you go through these issues and, and share so much of of your faith journey through your writings. I, I do want to ask before we jump to the book, um, as you were growing up, were there certain LDS voices that had a greater impact on you? Were there certain church leaders that you that you looked up to more than others or looked forward to their talks more than others? Or were there other folks either locally or generally at the, at the, you know, church leadership that had a bigger impact on you? I think people would be interested in knowing uh, your thoughts there. Sure. Well, Bill, I was very much a child of, of the president David L. McKay era. And he is still in my mind, the picture of the Latter-day Saint prophet. And we loved him very, very much. When I was a student at BYU, I I um, was asked to, to write a student body assembly honoring him. And we got to go up to um, Salt Lake City and meet him. That was during the time when you could walk around the halls of the church office building and meet a number of the brethren. But <clears throat> President McKay was a gracious and an open-minded man. And um, as I recall back then, there there was not this this fear of of being unorthodox. In fact, he stood up for a couple of men who were on their way to having a court, saying, um, if, "If the bishop holds a court on you, I'll be the first one there in your defense." So it was kind of an open-minded period. Um, and I I still remember a, a number of the beautiful things that President McKay said. I <clears throat> I had a great fondness for Elder Marion D. Hanks. In fact, it was he who performed the marriage ceremony for my husband and me. And he became a big fan of uh, well, my little book of poems, Beginnings. And there was even a period of time that I corresponded with him when he was uh, before and after when he was mission president in um, Thailand. And I, I remember, yes, looking forward to seeing him at the podium there in the tabernacle. And he always gave very thoughtful, warm talks. And I wish I could tell you that I remember some church leaders who were women, but you see, as far as we were concerned back then, church leaders were really the men. I, I do have a memory of Elaine Cannon, who was young women's president, um, not in my early growing up years, but perhaps in my 20s. And she was a, a, a bright, strong woman. I remember talking to her um, long after she completed that assignment. We were talking about a lot of things regarding the church. And she told me that uh, during her tenure as the young women's president, that some of the brethren, especially Brother Packer, really objected to her having such a presence in the hallways and just kind of going about being cheerful. And I said, well, why would that be? And she said, oh, well, because I was a jazzy girl, and they didn't like a jazzy girl. <laughs> so anyway, yes, my my major memories of growing up in the church were President McKay and, and Elmer Hanks. It, it is funny, Carolyn. I was, as you were sitting there and talking about uh, the two the two brethren and the one sister that that you have these fond memories of. I was I was going online really quick and looking up like the 1975 General Conference, and you're right. I mean, every single speaker is a man. There's not one single sister in the entire General Conference who talks. And and to me, it's amazing that that this sister canon even stuck out in your mind, knowing that there was so little interaction between the sister uh, general leaders of the church 
versus, uh, you know, any kind of them being even in your eyesight or speaking in a way that you could even hear or, or kind of, um, see them with a public right. presence. Yep. That, that was so. Wow. It was very much, uh, total patriarchy. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you, you hit it on the head there because I, I joined the church in like 1996, I think. And, uh, my entire time in the church, I think, Sisters at least gave a few talks in general conference, but you go back far enough and it's just not there at all. I, I want to jump into the book. Again, we're talking today with Carol Lynn Pearson, uh, author of The Ghost of Eternal Polygamy, uh, Haunting the Hearts of Heaven. I'm sorry, Haunting the Hearts in Heaven of Mormon Women and Men. And, and I want to just ask you this or maybe make a statement and let you kind of share your thoughts on it. This book is very, what I would call non-binary. It's not this black or white image. I mean, you're sharing the pain that men and women are feeling over the practice of polygamy. And yet, as you get into the book, one of the solutions that you offer is this idea that we've got to get on equal grounds and allow both the women and the men, if their spouse passes away, to be sealed to another person. And I just want to share that I, I love the approach that acknowledges kind of both sides of that, that, that polygamy is both hurtful, but also that there is a need in some ways, if someone passes on to make space for anyone and everyone uh, in the church to, to be sealed again, because there's so many situations that kind of can really make that kind of difficult, isn't it? Sure. And you know, we really don't know exactly how heaven is going to look. Mormons love to pin things down and, you know, do charts and graphs and say, okay, here's what it is and here's who's going to be with whom and all of that. Uh, <clears throat> well, speaking of President McKay, it was under his direction that uh, his counselor, Hubie Brown, received permission to, to seal a number of living women to a second Husband already having been sealed to to their first husband, with just the the understanding that you know this is is really such a messy kind of um, confused thing that we're trying to hold in place here. Let's just go ahead and do this sealing and let the Lord sort it out in the next life. So yes, I think that is one of the the first steps that that really needs to happen to let men and women come into the temple. On equal ground. Right. It seems like such a, a huge step, but one that's just so necessary. I, I did want to ask you, I mean, let's say the church takes that first step and, and they make space for both women and men to, to without any kind of special permission, which is the case if a sister wants to go and do this. Um, and I've heard just like you, I mean, I've heard anecdotal evidence that there are uh, sisters who have gotten permission to be sealed to a second spouse or, or, you know, in the case of maybe, maybe both, uh, the first and the second husband pass away to get, to get sealed to another spouse. But there's that special permission that's needed, whereas the men don't really have that. If the church took that first step and said, look, let's just put them on equal grounds. Let's allow the men and the women, if they lose a spouse, to go get sealed again. Um, do you feel like that would resolve the angst in Mormonism over this issue or, or do you think there's other steps we have to take? Oh, that would certainly not solve everything. We, <clears throat> after I suggest that that is really the first thing that, that I believe has to happen, I, I go on to suggest, and I really do believe, that polygamy and the tremendous presence that it held in the church for all of the 19th century and continued through the first part of the 20th century and continues today. It, it was writ in granite by both Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and those that succeeded them. And uh, so we, we cannot expect that the, the, the kind of gentle whisper that we hear that says, you know, that the, the Lord's plan of marriage is is monogamy unless he decides otherwise. So you see, that parenthesis is huge. 
And um, we will not solve this until, I believe, it is solved in some way close to how we have uh, <clears throat> solved the the really long-term ban on black men holding the priesthood and black men and women being allowed in inside the temple. There has been pretty much an acknowledgement that that Brigham Young was influenced by the racism of his day. And without the actual words, God was not responsible for it. It's my belief that that is indeed the suggestion that is held today. And I, I believe that we have so overlooked the needs of women. And certainly our black brothers and sisters deserve much more than even they're getting today by way of real, real inclusion. But I understand there's about 5% in the church today that are African-American men and women. And there's over 55% of the active membership who are women. And, you know, while we make sounds that, that say women come first, women come first, uh, in, in reality it's not that. Women very often come last. And there are so many things about the supposed equality of maleness and femaleness in this church that have just been so entirely overlooked. And I really do believe that in order for us to move forward in any significant way toward real partnership between men and women, and we hear the term partner, and partnership uh, used in some talks in general conference. And I think that there are marriages that are able to work that out just between the couple. But as a large um, concept, it's not something that we can even get a hold of until we disassemble the paradigm of polygamy. Because on top of ordinary run-of-the-mill patriarchy that most everybody in the world still has to deal with, we Mormons have this unique and very damaging paradigm of eternal polygamy and of the correctness of historical polygamy that is, is just glued on top of regular patriarchy. And, and I, I submit that a polygamy has to be dismantled before we can in any good conscience really say that we're trying to address and move ourselves toward partnership. Yeah, and in fact, I know in the book you you offer these kind of three steps to, to do that. And the first one we already talked about, which is to kind of place the husband and the wife on equal ground, to place the men and women of the church on equal ground and allow both genders to go into the temple and to be sealed to a later another spouse if the first one passes. The second step you say is at some point is to kind of walk polygamy out of section 132, which, which I think can be done because if I'm not mistaken, we've we've taught the idea that our or at least our history gives us the idea that section 132 is not just one instance of of Joseph claiming that God's giving him some insight, that rather it's multiple revelations put together into what is now section 132. And, and it seems reasonable that we could walk pieces out of there. And I know in your book, you talk about other changes we've made along these, these lines to hymns and other things within the church. That's true. And um, we know that language in the book of Mormon was, has been changed. Um, and even the brother Joseph did the first changing of um of white and delightsome to pure and delightsome. And a, a lot of language has been changed when the need has been shown to be profound. And we have yet to understand how profound is the need for women to be looked at as equals and women will never be looked at as equals as long as we are holding tight to the paradigm of polygamy. And in, in the book, I, I tell so many stories. And let me just give a really quick 
review of how I got all of these really thousands of, of stories. Um, I, I sent out a, a survey through social media asking people to take this survey, giving their opinions, feelings, and then ultimately their stories about what the inequality in the sealing practices means to them. And the the thousands of responses, well, the first day there were over 2,400 people who took that survey. And four weeks later, over 8,000 had taken the survey. And at the end of the survey, I asked for people to give their stories. These would all be anonymous. I couldn't know who these people were if I wanted to. I asked uh, to give their stories, and over 2,500 people left stories besides the comments that they had made throughout the survey. And I, I sat for several months just reading all of these stories, about 85% of which expressed a lot of pain or confusion. And so with with that knowledge, I I knew that something had to happen here. And the, the particular thing that that I called this up for was, as I was about to say, that a number of the stories were from young women and older women remembering back to their days in institute or in seminary, where in studying Doctrine and Covenants 132, they just got sick to their stomach. Several said, I had to get up and leave. I had to go into the bathroom where I cried. One said, I had to go into the bathroom where I threw up. If, if men could have an understanding of what that section does to a woman's heart and spirit and psyche, they just would not stand for it. And truly, truly, Bill, something must happen, and I believe eventually will happen, because we are better than that. And another theme that I've taken throughout this entire book was that we as a Mormon community... Membership and leadership are better than to allow this confusion and this pain, this tremendous inequality, to continue. Yeah, and I know that you know the third the third step you give us is that we've got just to completely disavow polygamy altogether. And and I want to get into these stories that you share from from a surface level. I want to kind of approach it this way. It feels to me, Carolyn, like the church's preference would be to kind of not really talk about it. Just let it kind of drift away into the memory (laughs) hole, right? Sure. Now, Bill, you've been in the the church for a couple of decades, but that that has been this for for until very recently. That has been the, the standard way to deal with this. In fact, for for most of the decades, in the, in the mid um, 1900s, it was it was absolutely policy from the top of the church that in in any manual and any of the the periodicals, polygamy was not to be mentioned. And as the historical uh, as the historian's office began to change, and as as of course the pressure came for for more transparency, <clears throat> the brethren have put out these these essays, and that's a step forward to acknowledge that Brother Joseph did have between thirty and forty wives, and that was a shock to a lot of people. Of course, I knew about that for many, many, many years, but uh, we have yet to acknowledge how that affects our community, how it affects marriages, how it affects um, the, the comfort level of women and the comfort level of men. It's not just that polygamy is a great thing for men and bad for women. That's that's not it at all. Polygamy is bad for everybody. Yeah, I was just, Carolyn, I was just at a, uh, a retreat last weekend. It was for Latter-day Saints who, who are feeling a lot of pain right now within Mormonism from social issues or discovering deeper history. And there was some real healing when people felt a real safe space to just talk 
about the hurt that they were feeling. And I felt like your book does the same thing. It's like, look, here's a safe space. Tell me your story and let's, let's just put it out there. And, and I think the church really hesitates to do that. You're right. The essays are a huge step forward, but there is some real pain and hurt. And I, and I think as you point out, at least up until recent, and I still think it goes on to some extent, we just don't want to talk about these things in terms of the church generally. But I think when we get down to the actual folks who are hurting, they want a safe space to talk. And, and I wonder maybe if you could just speak over the course of your life, having, having ministered to so many people who are hurting, maybe talk for a minute about the value for that person to have a safe space and to just tell their story and to be validated for, for their experience. You know, I think that the reason that, that on day one of this survey, we got more than 2,400 people testifies to what you just said. People, women in this case, and men, have been desperately hungry. And I'm just going to narrow it down to this subject for, for this moment. On the subject of what the remaining threat of polygamy does to them, there has really been no way to discuss this in a, in a church setting. And, but of course, women talk about it with each other, but sort of in hushed tones and in, I don't want to think that I'm unfaithful, but this is how I feel. Or, or mothers and daughters talking, and the mother saying, I, I know every woman in our family has to come to, to grips with this one, in one way or another. And, and, and you will have to do that too. Um, it's, it's just a shame that we have really not had a good public space to have this happen. Now, see, I personally just kind of very gradually <laughs> created a little space for myself in the public arena of Mormondom. And that happened in a very bizarre way because all of a sudden, when my husband insisted that we put out this little book of poems, who would have thought that that would have created a platform for me? But it did. And many of my things, uh, while, while being very unremarkable in terms of, of dealing with the issues, they still, many of them, well, just because I was a woman speaking uh, in these poems of, uh, of women's matters as well as general matters, I began to receive letters. You know, people used to write letters. Do you remember that, Bill? I received so many letters from women saying, oh, I'm so glad to know that you're there. I, I You have a voice, and I don't have a voice. Here's my story. And, and sometimes it would be a story of the fear of polygamy. Sometimes it would just be some kind of domestic abuse or, or feeling marginalized in the church. And these, these, all these issues were, uh, were already growing inside my own mind and heart. And so some of the poems that I wrote, such as a couple of my, my, my earlier, uh, longer narrative poems, Millie's Mother's Red Dress. My gosh, that's a very much of a feminist poem, the story of a, a woman who, who bought a red dress and never, ever wore it. And another poem called The Steward, a man who takes good care of his lands that his father gave him, but does not equally perform a good stewardship with the wife that was given to him and who gave up her violin when he said, no, no, you, 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 you can't be in the town symphony. We've got, no, I, I've been, you've been given to me and I, I have to make these decisions. Um, that poem had a large impact. In fact, I remember uh, not too long after we moved to, to Walnut Creek, um, Dallin Oaks, who was then, I, I think, still BYU president, or maybe it was just after that, but I had developed a little bit of an acquaintanceship 
with him at BYU. And he called me on the phone and said, Carolyn, I need to know where I can find that poem of yours about the woman with the violin. I need to read that tomorrow morning to my priesthood poem. So I, even in these sort of safe little poems, or longer poems, I was still very often bringing in issues. And, you know, in my, my little play, My Turn on Earth, which is one of the earlier things that I did. Um, there are some things in there that are moving in this direction of let's give more, more thought to the female. When, when the little, the, the girl Barbara is called home after her turn on earth, the voice that calls out is a female voice that says, Barbara, time to come home. And we've already established that heaven is, is a kingdom where we have a wonderful king and a wonderful queen, but we call them father and mother. And I can't tell you how many uh, people I've spoken to over the years that say, you know, the very first idea I ever had about Heavenly Mother was what you did in my term on earth. So I guess what I'm saying, Bill, is that over the years, I have claimed a space for myself as someone who deserves to be listened to because I was not radical. I was not, um, I was not calling for for anything dangerous, but I was bringing in some ideas that a lot of people resonated with. And so I gradually, I, I think, created a lot of trust that there are now a lot of people who will hear this, hear the things in this book from me because I have proven to them that I care deeply about the church, that I care deeply about them, that I care deeply about making our community better. So yes, in answer to your, your question, and this is a very long way around it all, but people have been and are hungry to have a place, you know, besides the the fringe place, at least the, the, the places that the ordinary, um, highly orthodox Mormon would consider fringe places, like perhaps Sunstone or whatever. Um, People are very hungry to talk about issues that are real. You know, when, when discussion comes up at church and it, it begins to touch on things that are really real, that touch you where you live, everybody wakes up and wants to participate. So yes, we are hungry. And this is the issue. The life has chosen me to bring the, these messages to my people. And I do it with a great deal of gratitude and humility that that I have the the opportunity to give us information that has never been put out there before of the extent to which there is tremendous pain and confusion around all of this. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's talk about some of the specific voices. So you you send out this survey and you get such a large response and 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 then you know some of these voices which are touching on the specifics of of what a majority of these folks are feeling these stories make their way into this beautiful book of yours and i i wonder if you can share with the listeners like what are some of the things that these folks are drawing out that they're fleshing out that that are things they're harboring or carrying with them because of what polygamy is doing in the background of our consciences like like what is it what is it that's you know specific to these folks stories maybe a handful of them of things that these folks are bringing to the surface and saying look this this is with me all the time and here's why you know one of the first stories that i received is the one that i i share in the introduction to the book from a woman that you would think would have no reason <clears throat> to to be so distraught about this. A young married woman, very faithful, but she has become a hypochondriac and acknowledges that because she has this fear that as a young woman, mother of three children, if she dies in, in, young or at any time really, but especially if she dies young, 
she knows her husband will marry again, be sealed again, and that will mean she will live polygamy for her eternal life. And that haunts her. And she goes to the doctor maybe once a month for, for something because if we catch this early, I, I, I will die soon and my husband won't take another wife. And I, I mean, it goes on and on. it becomes crazy making. But when you are a woman and, and this is in your mind, it can be consuming. And some of the particular ways in which and as I began to enumerate um, the themes that were coming out here, well, the the, the one that came out that the heaviest uh, for me was that this led people right out of the church, men and women alike, constantly. <clears throat> the story concluded, this was one of the things, or this was the major thing that led me right out of the church. So that has to be looked at. And certainly women who are in the first stages of, of a marriage, well, I shouldn't say even the first stages. I mean, it, it's the, 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 the intense romantic flavor of those early years. But this carries on to when, to women of all ages who are very much in love with their husband, very devoted to their husband, but find themselves pulling away. And the phrase came up over and over again. I, I find that I hold back some of my heart from my husband because in our most intimate moments, I, I realize this is what he's going to be sharing in eternity with other women. Now, Bill, that's a horrendous thing for a woman to be thinking. Even some of them ask before they marry. They're, they're caught in that terrible cycle of saying, I love him and he has my whole heart, but do I have his? Well, I do now, but if, if the Lord commands him to take another wife, he's faithful, he would do that. And what would that mean for our marriage? So the fact that this interferes with marriage, I'm sure, contributes to divorces. I, I have bishops in the in these stories here saying, I have observed that this whole phenomenon of looking forward to eternal polygamy has caused divorces, has caused um, disruptions of marriages that should never have happened. So that's that's another theme that goes on here. Now, one of the Oh, boy, the most painful group of Mormon human beings that are affected by this is our young widows, our older ones. But let's just look at our younger ones. So many, many stories I received of women being widowed very early in their marriages, sometimes with a child or two or maybe none, and having been sealed to that now deceased husband, they find themselves in what they sometimes call themselves as being among the, the Mormon lepers. Because it's not easy for a widow who has been sealed to her first husband to find nice Mormon men who want to court them. And we can understand that. These nice, faithful Mormon men are given the full understanding that unless this woman cancels her ceiling, and that is not always as easy as you might think it ought to be. And even if it is uh, able, even if she is able to do that, she, she, what is she doing to him? Her, her, her first husband in the next life. He is now released from a bond that was sort of his, his a ticket to the celestial kingdom and now how is he fitting into the whole pattern of of getting into the celestial kingdom all of these tremendously difficult questions are left in such confusion it's, it's really pathetic and it's it's indefensible but this young man who is considering 
dating a young widow, not knowing whether she will want to uh, have the seating canceled, or, or him even saying, why should I take away the supposedly eternal salvation of this first the husband? He was a good man. I don't want to interfere with that. So, so let's say there is a, a decision in his mind that I, I think I would like to go ahead and marry this young widow, sealed widow, knowing that from everything he has been taught, when his life with her is done, she, along with any children that come from that union of his own biological DNA, those children, as well as the wife that he has had for maybe 30 or 40 years, will be taken from him and given into the eternal family kingdom of husband number one because of his patriarchal um, uh, authority and he was in line first. That can be a terribly difficult thing. And if, if the marriage does go forward, that can be a stumbling block between them. So so there you have another one of the the awful specific kinds of unfairnesses that are visited upon way too many people, young widows and the men who might consider marrying them. And the, the, the pain that comes from all of that, men saying how they have wept, believing truly that their own children belong to another man in the eternities. Oh boy, there has to be something obviously so wrong here that it has to be addressed. Soon, I hope. Really, really soon, I hope. Yeah, you, you make a beautiful point, Carolyn, that whether you're young or older, whether you're married, whether you're widowed, like the the repercussions in our conscience of, of this issue, there's so many, and I hope this isn't an offensive term, but there's so many cancerous knots that that this ties into that it, it it seems to affect our culture no matter at what stage or or place in our faith that you're at it it's right there it's right there lingering over us with some other tangent absolutely and, and even you know one of the stories that i i just can't get out of my mind um, is a, a a woman who had a number of children with her first husband and then married again and had a, a, several decades with this second husband, loved him very, very much. And at one point, her adult children came to her and said, Mom, we, we understand that, you, that your heart is really with your, your present husband. We love him too. And we'd like to give you permission, if you want to, to cancel that that relationship with our father and we'll just uh, just have comp- have faith in the Lord and whatever comes of that and uh, she was just overwhelmed with what was a, a huge sacrifice from them because how do they know what that means for them in the eternities there are so many unanswered questions here but she did go ahead and and uh, was able to have that ceiling canceled. And the result of that was that she lost what she called a 40-year happy relationship with her former in-laws. She remained close to them. But once she canceled that relationship with their son, their brother, whoever it was, they took her off all the family lists. Many of them refused to speak to her if they saw her in the street. If they went to a church meeting where she was, they would leave before she was able to speak to them. Can you imagine that church policy brings us to a place where this is the result? I, I just beg, in, in, my, in my heart, in my prayers, I just beg that today's leadership will say, wow, 
we've got to do something about this. And, and Bill, I will tell you, I, I have sent a, a signed copy of this book to every one of the top 15 general authorities, along with a copy of the book signed to each of the wives, along with the, the three heads of the Relief Society, of the young women, of the primary, head of church public communications, church historian. I'm, I'm not in any way hiding what I have done here and what I think must be addressed hopefully soon. And, and so I, I know that I have done my part in, in shining a spotlight on this incredibly complex problem. And, and I believe that all of us are better than to allow this kind of pain to continue. So, that's what I'm hoping for. Yeah. They're, they're just, you're right. There's so much hurt and pain uh, in this. I want to read one little part of your book. This is page 200. And I want to kind of finish off this. And I want to talk to you a little bit about the LGBT issue. But again, you give these three steps, right? Bringing this equal ground, walking uh, polygamy out of section 132, and then disavowing polygamy, polygamy altogether. And you have this section in your book where you talk about Brother Joseph. And I, I just want to read this. It says, this, of course, this is you writing. Um, the brother Joseph, who I came to love and whom I love still, would weep to see today's tears on this subject. He himself said, quote, I have always had the satisfaction of seeing truth triumph over error and darkness give way before light, unquote. I believe satisfaction is what the eternal spirit of brother Joseph felt as he saw the ending of the priesthood and temple ban. And I believe that satisfaction is what brother Joseph will feel as he sees the departure of the ghost of eternal polygamy. And, and I'm with you, Carolyn. Um, I think Mormonism can show some of its maturity and, and some of its willingness to grow up a little bit. If it can say, look, if, if the gospel's designed to bring people to Christ, if there's parts of our history, parts of our theology, which don't make a lot of sense and they're doing the exact opposite of what the gospel's intended to do, then, then let's be brave and let's do something about that. And, and I just want to applaud you for, for this book. Like anytime we've had these difficult issues in the church, anytime we can give a voice to those who are hurt and distraught over them, I think whether we see it or not, I think we're moving the ball. And I, I just want to say thank you. I, uh, I want to ask a little bit about, uh, LGBT issues and I'm, and, and this is something you spoke on for for decades. I've I've got um, your book um, Goodbye I Love You, and then I also have the second uh, the second kind of part of that, which was No More Goodbyes. I've got both those on my bookshelf. I've read them both. I I really enjoy, uh, although very sad to, to read those at times, but really enjoy the the encouragement you give in your words for those of us to wrestle with these issues. And, and I've made a lot of movement myself uh, on these issues. And it seems like the church really wants to kind of white knuckle uh, the ground that they're holding, that that they're willing at this point to kind of give into the biology of it because science, I think, is making such headway. But they're not going to relinquish the mandate that these folks must live their lives alone or or enter a marriage that they have little desire to do so. And for me as an outsider who's just watching anecdotal evidence and watching that evidence kind of mount up, I'm seeing that this ground, it feels to me really untenable. I know there's some members out there, LGBT members, who are marrying somebody of of the opposite gender. And I know that some of these LGBT members are living single their entire life. And I, I want to honor that. I want to validate that, that if that's the choice they made, I, I completely honor that. But it feels like for the whole, that's a really difficult, untenable position that we, that seems much harder than anything we ask of our, our straight brothers and sisters. I, I want to get your thoughts on how reasonable it is in, in your heart, like how you feel, and I, I know how strongly you feel about this issue, to ask our LGBT brothers and sisters to choose something other than loving relationships to a person that they have an attraction to. Sure, Bill, and um, as you say, this is just what I feel in my heart. Uh, and so what I feel has, has no authority in it whatsoever except to express my own um, 
true emotions and and what my head also says that because i i know so many gay couples who are committed to one another and who are living as far as i can tell much more fulfilled lives together than they would being celibate and apart um my feeling is that this is something that should be a choice that should be honored and i do personally honor it we want to be i want i want to be careful here and i i want to make sure that we recognize that there are there are leaders in our church they've been you know called to to serve in those positions of leadership and we sustain them in those callings but again maybe just playing off of the time we've had to think about this issue to wrestle with it if if the brethren felt inclined to to make a shift on this issue to allow for more inclusiveness just you and me just talking do, do you feel like there's theological room to do that i mean do you sense like there's places we can go in our theology and say look we thought we understood this but look here's this and it gives us more room to maybe be open to possibilities well bill i i don't think that i want to even make a statement about how how the theology could could adapt that's really not not my business but i really do feel that as as we come more to understand what what happens here in terms of the the toll of of what we're losing in terms of membership in terms of dividing families and 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 in terms of of turning away children of god that that should feel welcome as as a whole being um i believe that there is and and will be more room to find to find a place for our brothers and sisters who who are in relationship and and we all know what the um the the the, the position is of the official church the i i have observed that that bishops do have some leeway uh as to whether their congregation might have a place in it certainly not a place for going to the temple and all of that but but a place for a married man and i'm thinking of as specifically of um um a man that i have met and have communicated with who is is married and and loves the church and his ward loves him and they all understand who he is his partner and now his husband does not attend with him but he he's had a a a lovely place in the in the congregation and um with the policy of a year ago uh he was he was terrified and and he did receive a letter saying that it, it would be necessary to have uh a church hearing for him and the hearing was held and the um the result was that he was to maintain his his place though just the way he had been prior in the uh in the in the congregation doing his his service in a way that was appropriate and and he was very pleased at that and and i'm sure the members of his congregation were as well and i think that satisfied the 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 requirements of the church as well as the the um the judgment of of the bishop who who understood this circumstance very very well so uh, th- yes this is a tough one and um there is going to be a while of of just navigating and and continuing to learn yeah how brave i think of that leader to say look i'm going to i'm going to follow the letter of the law but i'm also going to use every inch of flexibility i've got and and to make sure that i still find a safe space for for this member to continue to participate and to feel loved within uh, within Christ church 
Right, of course. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I've got, I've got members of the church who email, email me all the time. I get, I get emails from people who, you know, say, Bill, how do you do it? How do you stay? How do you, how do you walk into Sunday school and you hear something frustrating or, or that makes you angry or makes you sad and, and, and where this person just wants to get up and walk out and sometimes they do, they say, Bill, how do you, how do you make that work? What is, how do you live in that tension? And I, I want to get your thoughts, Carolyn. How, when you go to church on Sunday and, and you sit in on the discussions that we have in, in gospel doctrine or, or relief society and, and something gets said that's, that, that hurts or is frustrating, how does Carolyn Pearson handle that? What, what are the steps you take or what are the things you do that help you kind of deal with that and still stay, stay in communion with the church? Um, firstly, I, I would want to say that, <clears throat> that I would never say anything at church that would embarrass my bishop or my state president. I would never say anything in a class that would embarrass the teacher. I just would not do that. But within those parameters, I am known in my ward as somebody who who has a willingness to share some interesting new ideas. And especially in Relief Society, well, I'm the only one who stands up when I make a comment. And I hate it that a lot of women have a very soft voice and you can hardly hear them. So I make it a point that I, I stand up and I look at the whole class and I make, I tell my story or I make my comment, whatever it is, and the women love that. I've had women speak to me afterwards or send me a note saying, oh, I love what you say in Relief Society. And so, yes, I am, I am careful there not to go across the line. But I, I, I do speak up. And, and there, there have been times when, well, okay, I'm, I'm thinking of some years ago, there was a, a, a talk given in sacrament meeting. Actually, it was by a high councilman uh, that, that really electrified me with something very, very, that, that something was wrong here. Something was very wrong. It was essentially suggesting that um, <clears throat> that a, a, a child might do a better service by not telling on if if the if a drunken parent were abusing him, and we don't want to let the, the father know it would break his heart to know how much he's hurt you. I I was horrified, and I went into the bishop directly after. And along with the bishop's counselor, who felt as I did, that something that there had been left there a very inappropriate message, and I, I was I was so upset. I remember I was shaking, and um, the bishop was he he did listen and and he he listened to me and his counselor and and uh, subsequently he went around and attend went into the relief society into um, the Sunday school into all of the subsequent meetings. And um, made a statement saying, I want to clear up something that, that was said in the talk. And I want to make sure that everybody here knows that we, we do not condone in any way silence around issues of, of child abuse. And, and I, I, write, I have written a lot of letters over the years. I remember it, years ago in the church news, there was this strange photograph that happened depicting good and evil. And there were two hands being held out. One was a dark hand and one was a, a, a light hand. And I, I cut that out and I sent it to President Hinckley. I said, dear President Hinckley, I, I do not believe that you personally want to give the message that is given here that, that, that looks like it's a racial kind of message. And he wrote back saying, thank you for this. I, I'm going to take this to the editor of the Desert News and hope that this will not happen again. So I have not been... Um, I have not been too reluctant when I feel it's appropriate to to make statements, but but I do it carefully. Right, right, and and I I'm with you. Like I 
I feel like you give as much charity as you can in all of these instances, and yet you also be a voice when it's appropriate. And like you say, not not make not working to make the the teacher feel uh, embarrassed, not working to to make your leaders feel embarrassed, but rather just when something is said that's going to hurt somebody, to just speak up and offer a voice that that you've got a different perspective than maybe what was said before. And I just, I appreciate that. I think there's a lot of wisdom in, in the life that you've lived, Carolyn, and, and all the experiences that you've had. And I think that listeners will appreciate some of that insight and advice because a lot of folks out there right now are trying to figure out how to, how to, how to make it, how to, how to stay Mormon and, and be authentic. And, and I think it's just a wrestle at this very moment in Mormonism that's, that's in our kind of our community conscience. I, uh, Today we're talking with Carolyn Pearson, author of The Ghost of Eternal Polygamy, uh, Haunting the Hearts in Heaven of Mormon Women and Men. Carolyn, can you point people to where they can get the book? Where Where is it available at? Sure. They could get a, a signed copy from me at my website, carolynpearson.com. Uh, it's readily available at, at Amazon. And uh, listed a couple of bookstores in in Utah, Benchmark in Salt Lake, and uh, Written Vision in in Provo. So I I do encourage anybody who finds this subject intriguing to please please get the book and read it and share it. Yeah, I know that I've been at uh, Benchmark Books myself and have seen it there. Um, again, I, I, I know at Sunstone you were signing a lot of copies for people and I just, I feel like you were just a, like a tireless advocate for, for love within Mormonism. And I just want to finish off the podcast just saying that you're one of my heroes and I appreciate you and think the world of you and your voice has been just so essential to Mormonism and, and helping us to kind of look in the mirror at ourselves and say, look, am, am I doing um, and, and am I treating others the way that, that the Savior would have me do? And I think you, all of your writings have caused me and, and lots of other church members to kind of have to wrestle with ourselves. And, and in that wrestling, there's a lot of growth. And, and I just want to say thank you for all you do. I appreciate that, Bill. I'm, I'm very grateful that I, that I have had a position from which I, I can use my voice. And I encourage, of course, everyone to use their voice. Awesome. Carolyn Pearson, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you, Bill.